to do or has to do, he's going to start doing it this round right now. I think he really realizes that he's getting in jeopardy of losing the fight. Before, well, he, before he, he felt it was okay. Well, he, was, he turned it up against he a takes right hand. hand and a left hand, and he's on the canvas again for the second time in two fights. And for the second time in two fights, he's not going to get up, and he's been knocked out again. Will we ever see Roy Jones nope. in the ring again? Not the one we are used to seeing, because we didn't see him tonight. We saw the guy who got knocked out by Tarver getting knocked out by Glenn Pitt. And he is still out on the canvas. And Bert Bagley. In our meeting yesterday, Roy Jones made it clear that he didn't think Tarver's knockout of him suggested he had deteriorated as a fighter. Quote, it could happen to anybody. It could have happened earlier in my career. Fact is, he's not the same fighter. He has not moved. He's still laying in the same position he had before him. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where we really don't want to see Anthony Joshua versus Jermaine Franklin. Like we really, really don't want to see Anthony Joshua versus Jermaine Franklin. And if you do, you might be the problem in the sport, not the solution, because I can't think of a worse way to, to come back, especially if you're going to be on pay-per-view. And as fans, we should be tired of having our chains yanked by these promoters who think we're just a convenient cash machine where you can just take out a few million here and there. You know, we need to make a stand against this. You know, if if you're going to fight Jermaine Franklin, that's an undercard fight for Anthony Joshua. That's the tune-up. It's a warm-up. Make that a 10-rounder. Put it on a more meaningful card. But I don't even think Hearn's got a more meaningful card. Like, his, his assets are either finished or out of commission for now. But I want to come back to that later. I think we need to... Let's digest what happened last weekend. Because a lot happened, and a, a, and a fair bit's happened since, which kind of confirmed what I said in, in episode 138. And I'm sure the things I said then will come to pass in the next few days. I'm going to come back to Eubank versus Smith, because we've already done episode 138 on that. And I think there's a, there's a lot in there to get, to get your teeth into. But when you talk about the rest of the card, because... Sky have a habit of making the first quarter of the year really good in terms of fights. Don't know if it's luck, don't know if it's design, but that pay-per-view card was was good because it gave us entertainment, but it gave us a hell of a lot of talking points, and which is always good for someone like me. So I'm loath to do this, but let's start with Fraser Clark. And the confusion around his career, because Fraser Clark was Team GB captain at the Tokyo Olympics, which is coming up to two years ago now, has been in the GB system, was in the GB system before Joshua, by the way. So he's done over a decade as part of Team GB. He's done the World Boxing Super Series. So he's, he's a highly experienced amateur. And it leaves me with this question. Why can't they push him faster? Joe Joyce made his debut against Ian Lewis, which people thought was crazy. He handled that easily. You know, this is, this is as if 
there's a fear. I don't know what that fear is. I don't, I don't think it comes from Fraser Clark. I think Fraser would fight anyone. There's almost like a fear around Team Clark, we'll call it, that maybe he'll get exposed. And so my question is, is he carrying an injury? Which means you're going to build him up in low-risk fights and then do the cash-out fights at the end. I don't know. It, it feels like they're protecting something when it comes to Fraser Clark because he's a big 19-stone guy. So when you've got a guy that size with that experience, you expect him to move quickly because you're trying to make some money on him, right? But Clark comes in, he was touching 20 stone. He's got to be like 19 and a half stone in the ring. And he's facing the guys at Espindola, who's coming in over 20 stone. And you're like, oh, this is easy. Like, he's not against a mover. He's not against a known puncher. I'm going to get him done. And yes, the, the kid retired after, was it the fourth round? I can't even remember now. But once again, Fraser Clark has failed to make a statement. And the thing that worries me the most with Fraser Clark is he's talking about being ready to fight Fabio Wardley in, in a few fights' time. And I'm like, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. When you started boxing, Fraser Clark, Fabio Wardley was probably playing football in his back garden. When Fabio Wardley started boxing, not even professionally, on the white collar scene. You were in the running for Rio 2016. Like, how, how much of a head start did he give you to then shoot past you? And now you're like, I'm not at his level? If you're not at Fabio Wardley's level now, you will never be at Fabio Wardley's level. You're not going to close that gap. He's younger, he's fresher, he has more development to come. You've maxed out all of that. You've maxed out your physical development because GB would have sweated that out of you. You've maxed out your technical development because you're at that age now where the brain's not going to form the new neural pathways to, to develop new skill sets. So the Fraser Clark you are now is pretty much who you're always going to be. If the Gorman fight can't happen now, if the Fraser Clark and Fabio Wardy fight can't happen now, when can they happen? If I'm Ben Shalom at Sky, I'm like, oh my God, how do we get this guy off the books? And as I said before, Fraser Clark's a lovely guy, but he's not showing the hunger that I thought you needed on the Sky platform. I thought Sky was, you need to show us, you deserve to be on this platform, which is what they did to Steve Robinson and Nick Webb. Uh, not Nick Webb, Nick Campbell. Why isn't Fraser Clark getting that same pressure? Now, who Who is it who's saying, I'm backing Fraser's approach to his pro career so far? Who in the building is saying that? I don't believe anyone is. What is this contract they've got him on where he can pretty much do as he pleases? Because he's not endearing himself to the fans. If you think about it, the fans have forgotten about Fraser Clark now. And we've had an era in this country of 20-odd years of our Olympic heavyweights garnering mainstream attention. Audley Harrison, mainstream attention. All those guys like Martin Granger and McDermott and that from like 2004, they weren't really at that level. And then you go to David Price, garnered that attention. Furies of that same era garnered that attention. Anthony Joshua garnered that attention. Dillian White garnered that attention. 
Joe Joyce garnered the same level of attention. The mainstream were like, we've got a big guy here. We think he can take on anybody. The Americans, the Russians, it doesn't matter. And we've got Fraser Clark and we're treating him like, I mean, like he's a traumatized kid. Oh no, we've got to be, be gentle with him, be kind with him, be patient with him. Well, now he's a heavyweight. Like, get, get him in there. Like, it's, it's absolutely insane that Jack Massey's a better heavyweight than Fraser Clark right now. Just let that sink in. Jack Massey is a better heavyweight right now after one fight at heavyweight than Fraser Clark is. How is that? And I can't even make an argument to the counter of that. I can't say, yeah, Fraser's a better heavyweight. Jack's a better heavyweight than Fraser Clark without a single win at heavyweight. That says it all. You know, and it's, it's, it's that curse of GB, isn't it? That the more we see these GB kids come out, the more we realize they've been badly coached at GB. And we can talk about all the medals we win, and that's cool. But GB's disappeared down this route that says we need medals at all costs. Therefore, we will teach you, we will coach you, we will train you to win medals. Boxing's almost secondary to it. It's, that's our business model. We win medals, we get money. That's all that matters to us. If you can't win us medals, we don't care. And what happens with that is you get a very narrow and focused version of boxing, which isn't great to watch and isn't commercially attractive either. So, so yeah, I think it's going to be a rough road for Fraser Clark. I wish him all the best. I'd like to see him, you know, go for it. Actually try and climb the ladder, win a British win a European, fight for a world title, all of that stuff. I want to see him do that. But if it doesn't happen this year, I just don't believe it will ever happen. And we'll all be there going, yeah, we knew this, we knew this wasn't going to end well. I think that's where you are with it. And it goes to show that below the top tier of heavyweights, the rest is kind of a, a mess, just a pretty average mess. Which brings us on to Joe Parker against Jack Massey. And... I'll go back to episode 137. I thought Parker should steamroller. I thought he should really steamroller Jack Massey. That's what we were looking for. We were looking for a dominant performance where we were like, my goodness, this Joe Parker guy's pretty cruel when he wants to be. You know, maybe, maybe if he'd been this way against Joshua, it would have been different. But I'm going to tell you what Joe Parker came out like. Joe Parker came out like a guy who's been sparring Tyson Fury. And through doing that, Fury's just eroded his confidence and his self-belief. So watching Parker's like this glaring realization that all those months and weeks of sparring Tyson, Fury's just beat the nasty out of Joe Parker. Literally beat the dog out of him. So, yeah, and you can see that, like, you know what, you know, when you've been around it, you know how sparring partners move and how they operate. And it's like Parker goes into sparring partner mode. And then he realizes, oh, no, no, this is a real fight. I, I need to get stuck in. But he doesn't have that, that gear that he may have had once upon a time as a prospect. He doesn't have that gear, that hungry gear. I don't know if he's got guaranteed contracts, guaranteed purses. No idea what his financial situation is. It's not my business, but he looks too comfortable. Joseph Parker came in, what, 17 stone six, I don't know, estimating. 
his normal weight. Jack Massey must have come in about 15 and a half stone tops. So you've got a two stone weight difference there. Yet the weird thing was in the ring, it looked like Jack might be the stronger guy in there. It didn't really look like Parker was was conditioned for that fight. And I think he's beginning to realise you can be a heavy-handed, big lump from New Zealand all you want. But at some point, you've got to have a devastating punch. And we haven't seen a devastating punch from Joe Parker. Ever. Not one devastating punch from Joe Parker. So, okay, you don't have a devastating punch. Surely someone in your camp must have had you, you know, throwing just heavy leather like Chisora does. Chisora just beats you up. And Parker's there trying to, trying to outbox Jack Massey. How are you going to outbox a smaller guy? A smaller, faster guy? You're trying to outbox him, trying to show that you've got these skills. But I guess you can do that when you've got guaranteed contracts, can't you? So here we have Jersey Joe Parker trying to show us that he's still got it, that he's still a factor. Meanwhile, with every round of this 10 that passes, we realize this guy's not even British level. You're looking at that Joe Parker going, I don't even think you beat Johnny Fisher right now. And that's been one of the glaring falls from grace I've ever seen. Like, this is bad. It's... When I see a performance that, that Parker put out on a Saturday, here's a question I, I'd ask. If I was in the arena and I stood next to, who knows, if I stood next to AP, if I stood next to JP, if I stood next to Dan Aziz, I'd look at them and I'd go, I don't think this guy wants to box, to be honest with you. I don't think he's that far from retirement. He's one hard beating away from retirement. Now, I don't know if that's the Tyson Fury beatings that have done that to him. Or I don't know if it's the Joe Joyce beating that did that to him. But imagine you were Joe Parker and at one point you were WBO world champion and you fought Anthony Joshua and you genuinely thought you could win and unify the belts, right? At one point in your career, you genuinely thought you were at that level. In the Kevin Barry days. And shouts out to Kevin because now we realize what a job Kevin did with Joe. And then you, you spend time in camp with Fury and you realize he's levels above you. Then you're like, okay, that's Tyson Fury, whatever. Then you jump in with Derek Chisora, an old Derek, by the way, past his best Derek, and he'll admit that, but a game Derek nonetheless. And he pushes you to the wire to the point where we need to see the rematch. Now you're like, once I was the golden boy of the heavyweight division, this is where I'm at now. And then Joe Joyce bullies you and puts you to sleep. And you're like, I just got put to sleep by Joe. I got dropped by Dillian White before. There's a level of heavyweight that I am not part of. I am not that good. So if you're Joe Parker, what do you then do at that point? You've gone from being the golden boy, which he was for a little bit, to this, an opponent. And you can see that's affected him psychologically because... The Joe Parker pre-Joshua would have dealt with Jack Massey comfortably. Maybe he wouldn't have knocked him out, but he would have steamrolled him and Jack Massey would have known he'd been in a fight. Not to say that he didn't know after this one, but it wasn't what it should have been. And this is where boxing can be a bitch sometimes because as fans, we want to see guys giving their all. 
right? Because that's the image of boxing we're sold. These warriors put it on the line every time they fight. They train hard in camp. They do this, they do that. They're worthy of respect. This is what we're told all the time. And then you see the performance and you're like, I don't believe that guy did a full camp. I don't believe Parker did a full camp. His conditioning suggests he didn't. His performance suggests he took this lightly. And that would indicate that he's not hungry anymore. There was no urgency. There was no intensity. Massey had an easy time in there. where He was even able to dictate terms. And there's an argument to say, yeah, they spied each other before they know each other. But you're Joe Parker. You're the bigger guy. You can't bring something different. Different shot, different combination. Because Parker ripped Jack Massey with right hooks, right uppercut. He, he ripped him with shots that you're like... If Johnny Fisher had thrown those, he would have launched Jack Massey into orbit. So what the hell is Parker doing? And I say this, if you've been following me from the New Age days, you'll know that I've always thought Parker was a bit of a fraud. I've always thought Parker was the least deserving man to hold a heavyweight title. Yes, even less deserving than Charles Martin. Because if you look at Charles Martin, right? He's dropped guys like Luis Ortiz. Like, Charles Martin's gone for it. Charles Martin's done a lot of damage to, to a lot of people we respect. Joe Parker hasn't. So it seems that Sky essentially saddled with this guy on their wage bill for a while and probably have no idea how to monetize him. How do you, how do you make money on Joe Parker? You can wheel in a Michael Hunter, let Michael Hunter do a number on him, then keep Michael Hunter on and see what he does maybe. Um, you know, the the mystery man in the whole world, like this Martin Bacoli. Can, why can't someone sign Martin Bacoli? I, I keep asking, are his papers straight? Has he got a work permit to work in the United Kingdom? Like, has he got legit papers to be operating here? Because it's almost as if he fought Kuzmin at Wembley a couple of years ago, and then that was it. Couldn't do any work here. And we never saw him again. But why Sky don't get hold of Bacoli and say, put Bacoli in with Parker and let's get rid of Parker? Because Bacoli are on current form since Hunter, man. He's been stopping people. Like he's, it's like he's just switched up again and unleashed the monster. Let Bacoli get at it. And we'll talk about Bacoli later when it comes to Joshua. But why not put Parker with Bacoli? That doesn't seem like an expensive fight to make. You know, and that would be a good chief support for whatever pay-per-view they want to do next. Because, look, Sky need the dome. And, like, if Taylor Cattrall's been delayed, Q1's looking a bit light now. So they need those sorts of fights. And, you know, <laughs> I just don't want to see Parker in a British ring again. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. I just never liked him, never liked his style, don't like his approach, don't like anything about Joe Parker. That doesn't mean I don't like him as a person. I'm just talking about Joe Parker, the boxer. I do not like anything about Joe Parker, the boxer. I just don't. I mean, there's only one heavyweight JP that matters, and it's not Joseph Parker, that's for damn sure. And talking of a guy that would have put Joe Parker and Jack Massey to sleep on the same night, now we've got to talk about Richard Riakpour against Christoph Glavatsky. Glavatsky? Glavatska? No idea. Now, I'm a Richard fan because I think Richard's, Richard's just got the equaliser. All the other stuff, being able to box and stuff, who cares? Like, seriously, who cares? 
I don't care if he can throw a double left hook. I genuinely don't care. As long as Richard Riakpo has a jab and that backhand, that's all he needs and some good feet. That is all he needs because at some point he's going to hit you and you're going to feel it. And that's the excitement with Richard Riakpo. Making him into a patient, considerate boxer is the worst thing you can do with someone like Richard Riakpo. Just tell him, land that backhand. Land it flush, land it clean. That's, and that's, that should always be his career. You know, at Cruiserweight, you're not going to come up against many people bigger than you. Um, hasn't Mark Tibbs got the kid? Is it Fletcher, Tommy Fletcher? Someone like that, that Mark Tibbs seems to have the belief that he's, he's the savage punch in the division. But I'll say this, it's Richard. It's always been Richard, and here's why. Richard hurts you with both hands. When you talk to people who've sparred Richard, it's the same thing. It's like, you think if you keep him on his left hand, it's less painful. It's like, well, that's not true. It's equally as painful. You know, so he's a two-handed threat. Against Glavatsky, there's a guy who came for a payday. He thought, let me just make a fist of it for a while. And then he just realized Richard's quite hard to hit. And there's no, there's no more hurtful feeling in that ring then someone jabs you right and as you take that jab to the face you look at where their head is and you're like he's right on the other side of the ring how the hell am I supposed to get there and it's hard although in Glavatsky <laughs> to prosecute Glavatsky for his sins he kept moving on to the right hand so as a southpaw I found it strange that he would move from right to left instead of moving from left to right. Had he moved from left to right on Richard, he'd have probably confused Richard a bit more. Because we know Usyk was able to confuse Joshua, and that's essentially the same camp. So why he didn't do that, I don't know. Maybe he thought he, he had the measure of react point, he could take his shot. But I just, in, in my head, I was thinking, no, 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 you're playing a dangerous game here. And I messaged a friend of mine after round one, and I said, if Glavatsky gets past round four, he has a chance to cause Richard trouble. But he has to get to round four. And I said, I don't see him getting to round four because that right hand is going to connect. And sure enough, it did. And wow, did it connect. Now, I've said, I've said, I've said this about Richard before. He's impressive because he gives you that full extension when he throws a shot. There isn't another inch his fist could extend when he hits you with that right hand. Everyone can learn from that. Because when you fully extend, that's a fully committed shot. It's devastating. But then also Richard's got that, that kind of disproportionately large upper back, which I think is advantageous as well. Like he's, he's built for knocking people out. Like, I wouldn't want to do rounds with him. Him and Lawrence, for different reasons. I think Richard's got that kind of... That kind of kind of wilderish punch, where it's like there may not be a lot of weight to it in terms of body weight, but it comes so fast and it's so explosive that it just does you in. And then you've got Lawrence, who... I imagine it's just sort of getting hit with a, with a bowling ball around a rope. I mean, it just, just takes you out completely. And seeing those two in the ring one day 
that would be fun. At, the, at that point, the laws of physics may may implode. But credit to Richard. Um, he's He's been able to deliver those sorts of moments even when he knows he's fighting below his true potential. Was Sky seemingly unwilling to commit the resources to make that fight? Makabu is not an expensive fight to make. They could get Makabu over for for relative pennies, right? And you ought to ask yourself, why haven't they done so? Is it like they need to lock Richard in on a longer contract? I don't know. But Makabu could be there in the summer, you know, unless Billum Smith's got Makabu, I don't know. But Makabu's not expensive. I don't think that Jay Opetia, Australian guy, I don't think he's that expensive. Just get him over. Let's let's get the belts here and let's get these unifications and all these fights. Let's get these fights happening because there's no point in having all of these cruiserweights on Sky, Chamberlain, Lawal, Riakpour, uh, Akoli, Forrest, Massey. And I'm sure I'm missing people out, right? But there's six there. They we can just have some belts and mix it up between these guys and make Cruiserweight that division that we own and we dominate. We make it lucrative. And we're just playing around the edges. We're not going for that. If I was Sky, that would be my lane right now. I'd say, we're going to dominate Cruiserweight. Heavyweight, if we find a good one, fantastic, great. But we're going to dominate Cruiserweight and give fans fights that they will enjoy, fights they want to see, and we're going to make these guys rich, and we're going to get rich as a result. I don't know why that's so hard to figure out. Why is that hard to figure out? Please, someone tell me why. There's so much potential to make something special at Cruiserweight, and it doesn't happen very often. We should be all over that right now because that's where the entertainment is. But it's only right we talk about Chris Conger versus Echo Esterman for the British, I think it was for the Commonwealth Weltweight titles as well. First things first, what a fight that was. We don't, we don't have enough of those in this country. Just two guys who have known each other for at least a decade, right? They've known of each other, they've seen each other, they've been at the same shows, they've boxed in the same tournaments, they know each other. And they get to fight. And we get to see this, this thing of, there's no fear. They know each other. They're comfortable with each other. They've been in each other's worlds. And we get them at the roughly of the same age group, clearly, right? And we get to see these guys go for it, for meaningful titles, titles that we can all get behind. And it's so rare we get these fights. When's the last time we had something like that? Um, and it's, it can't just be two Brits fighting because you get that at any small hall show. It's when it's the last time we had two accomplished Brits go at it for meaningful titles. I don't know if Fowler Fitzgerald was for a meaningful title, but Fowler Fitzgerald is another example of, of that kind of fight that we don't get enough of in this country. Like you could build British boxing just on those sorts of fights because they all have meaning. They all mean something. They, they, in, in the trade especially, it's harder for the casual fan because you haven't seen this bubble along. But when you've seen these things bubble along and in your head, you're like, Congo and Esmond have to fight. And I've been saying this probably for the last few years. Like, Congo and Esmond have to fight. Like, it gels perfectly. That style comes together beautifully into an entertaining and compelling fight. Now, 
they call these trade fights and sometimes I think it's a pejorative term but it's also understandable why you'd call this a trade fight because you'd really have to know your boxing and your boxing backstories to know why this fight was significant. So here you have two guys who are accomplished, skilled, both talented, can fight, can absolutely fight and they go head to head. And it's not... It's not what you'd call a, a brawl or a war. It wasn't Conan versus Wood, where, where the contrast in styles was such that you could have that kind of situation. The tactical approaches between Congo and Esmond were so different. The question was whose approach would prevail? And you could see from the beginning, Esmond was like, I'm doing the 12. As a bare minimum, I'm doing the 12. If I do less, fantastic. I don't know if Chris was prepared to do the 12. I don't know if tactically he was set up to do the 12. And remember, I'm Team Congo. Got a lot of respect, a lot of love for Esselman, got a lot of love for what Barrington Brown's done with not only Echo Esselman, but Derek Osaze as well. Big shout out to him. Surprised Ben Shalom didn't sign him when, when he was handing out contracts at the beginning because... Um, Derek Osaze delivers. Every fight he delivers. But I guess it wasn't meant to be, which is a real shame. But we, we get Esselman on Sky finally. Um, I believe that Matcham should have signed him a long time ago. And these two guys play out the most thrilling fight I've seen, just from a ebb and flow sort of perspective, because the first three rounds is Congo behind the jab. And you're wondering, can Chris do this for 12 rounds? Because if he does this for 12 rounds, this might be pretty one-sided. But you're watching and with every round, Esselman's kind of getting his bearings, he's getting his timing, he's, he's working out what shots to land. And you can see him, it's just innovation in practice. He's experimenting, he's doing these different things. He's there and he's like, if I throw the right hand this way, oh no, that didn't work. Okay, if I, if I come under first, then go over, okay. That works. Save that for later. And you could see that he was piecing together things he was going to do later. He's working out where he could hit Chris. And Chris was focused on if I can just control where the fight happens, when the fight happens, with my jab and my skills, my speed, my sharpness, my timing, this will be okay. And in my head, I was like, I don't know if Chris can do this for 12 rounds. This is pretty intense. Because remember... When two people are relatively equal in experience, ability, etc., etc., there's going to come a point when they both have to let the, the dog in them loose. So at some point, you just got to be there in the middle of that ring, mauling, brawling, or against the ropes, and it's just character at that point. All your skills and your fundamentals go out the window. It's just character. Do you have the heart to do what you want to do at that point? So we knew that was coming at some point. It was just whether it was going to happen in the middle rounds or the end rounds. And Chris is hanging in there in the middle rounds, but you could see Esselman's now. The strength, the experience, the stamina is starting to have an effect now. And, and Chris went from boxing to fighting. And he's fighting to keep Esselman off. He's fighting to get some space, some distance, and some thinking time. And I'm like, well, what tactics did Ben Davison have here? Because I'm a big believer when you're a, when you're a super skilled boxer, 
Use your skills in the first three rounds. Use your skills in the last three rounds. Make sure you've got enough in the tank to do that. Those middle rounds, you might have to dog it out. But that's okay. That's what you're meant to do when you get to the top of the pyramid. And it's almost as if Ben Davis and thought Chris Congo could just box Esso Echo Essamon all night. And that's showing a lack of respect for the opposition. And it felt like that. And I felt for Chris because I wish Chris had had a different game plan. Because I think Chris could have could have won that handily. But then Echo Essamon also just a hard, hard man. I think that's how I've always described him. Just a hard, tough man who can, who can dish it out and he can take it. He, he's, he's like a Nottingham version of David Avanesian. If you're not on your game, if you're not on your metal, if you haven't done all your runs, if you haven't done all your sparring and all your conditioning, he's going to find out. That's why they call him the engine. And so round after round, he gets closer and he starts to impose himself physically now. You know, he feels comfortable. He knows where he is in this fight and he knows what he can, he knows what he can unleash Heading, heading down the stretch. And he was able to do so. And Chris was, like I said, Chris was fighting to get him off. And you could see that Chris hadn't had enough 12 rounders because I wish he'd held a bit more. I wish he'd held, rotated, spun, kept the middle of the ring, circled a bit more. There, there are loads of things I wish he had done, but I wasn't in camp to be able to say that. So Eka Esselman wins. It's a close decision. I think it was a, was it majority decision? 114, 114, 115, 114, something like that. So it was tight. And if, you know, if Chris had been switched on in a couple of those middle rounds, he would have won. But in, in a fight like that, there's no, there's no loser. For me, there's no loser because Chris's stock would have gone up. Echo's stock would have gone up. You want to see Echo in with guys like Avanesi and now it's time You'd even put him in with some of those American guys. You know, I'd whack him in with a Broner. If Broner comes out looking good, you'd whack him in with, uh, I'd put him in with a Keith Thurman right now. Um, Danny Garcia, I would have no qualms putting Echo Esman in with those guys because I think he works them pretty hard. As for Chris, keep Chris at British level. I don't see why you don't. My worry with Chris, and I've said this before, Ben Davison and that gym of his are career graveyards. They are career graveyards. Maybe not always in the sense that you're going to lose, but you're always going to deliver a performance worse than your best performance. And I've been racking my head to try and think why. And there are a number of elements. So first and foremost, Ben's what? He's still in his early 30s, right? He's young. He's young and forget, forget anything else, man. Like you have to have lived, you have to have lived, you have to have lost, you have to have been hurt. You have to have hurt someone. You have to have smiled. You have to have made someone smile. You have to have been loved. You have to love. There are all these things you have to have done in life before you can take the career, the health, the safety of another boxer in your hands. That's one element of it. The second element is you have to have been a winner at something in life. You have to have been an identifiable winner at something because how else are you going to teach someone to win if you've never won? 
How are you going to teach someone to sacrifice and dedicate themselves and go to hell and back? You don't know what hell feels like if you've never put it on the line. And it doesn't matter what you put it on the line for. It could be business. It could be sport. It could be life. It could be armed, armed conflict. If you don't have that feeling of putting stuff on the line, like what are you teaching people? The third thing, knowledge and understanding are two different things. I think Ben Davison knows a lot. I do. I think if you sat there and said, talk to me about this, he could talk for ages about stuff. But could he show you understanding? Can he look at a situation and go, no, that can't work? And give you a logical reason why that can't work? Or would he say, that can't work because someone told me it wouldn't work? These are the real questions. But everyone ran to Ben Davison because it was fashionable. He was the hot ticket. And they were impressed with his knowledge and this, that, and the third. But no one looked for that understanding. Do you understand? Can you problem solve in real time? Do you understand who Echo Esselman is? Do you understand who Barrington Brown is? Do you understand the bond they have? Do you understand that Echo would run through brick walls for him? Have you got Chris Congo running through brick walls for you? All of these things are important. Yeah. So Ben Davison will never be found lacking in terms of knowledge. He'll never be lacking in terms of enthusiasm to learn and of getting off his backside and going to pick the brains of others. He won't. But the understanding, the character, the personality, the life experience, that all takes time and you've got to live. And until he's got these scars and he needs a few losses and he needs to know what it's like to not be the cool new trainer. He needs to know what it's like. To, like Adam Booth is now where people are like, you're a bit of a hoax, mate. Yeah, and that's probably why he blocked me on Twitter, which I think is hilarious. But you need to be able to understand what it's like to be up and to be down. And it will make you a better coach, make you a better trainer. Right now, I just think he's trying to teach people stuff that he doesn't understand. And he doesn't understand because he's never had to try it. He's never had to try it. So him telling Chris to do stuff when Chris is absolutely shagged. And you could see that in the fight. Chris was tired. And Ben said, yeah, keep doing the same thing. It's like, no, mate, he's tired. Yeah. At some point, you've got to say to Chris, Chris, yeah, this is where character kicks in. You're going to have to start bullying this guy. You're going to have to let the South London and you come out for the next three rounds. You're an accomplished boxer. I don't have to tell you what shots to throw, but I have to tell you now, stamp your damn authority on this fight. You go out there and be Chris Conger. Go out there and be South London's best. Show us why you are one of the best in South London. That's all you do. All that, trying to be super technical and clever. It's almost like you're, you're coaching for yourself, not for the fighter. I think that's where Chris suffered. He needed someone to lead him into that dark place and say, mate, just be here for three or four rounds and you're going to be British and Commonwealth champ. I didn't see that once in the corner. If I was responsible for Chris Congo's career now, that would be a massive red flag and I'd be like, maybe Ted Bammy wasn't so bad after all because Ted would have read him the riot act. I just think this Ben Davison, Barry Smith experiment is, is, is going to be a career graveyard. If you go to that camp, you're going to suffer. 
there is a reason why Josh Taylor went to Joe McNally. Because Josh saw the brains trust. He saw all the horsepower that's in that gym. Real horsepower. Not Ben Davison, not Lee Wiley, not Barry Smith, not that kind of Instagram horsepower, um, IFL horsepower, ID boxing horsepower. Not that kind of, uh, we can talk well into a microphone horsepower. Not that. When you walk into Liverpool, when you walk into the Rotunda, the Solly, and there are guys there who have been there and done it. And when they see you do something wrong, they can pull you up and go, no, no, you don't want to do it that way. You know, I tried doing it that way and I got uppercutted to heaven. Be very careful. When you've got that around you, you're going to become better. The standards are higher. The experience is greater. Everything is just better. So Chris has a tough decision to make. Do you keep wasting your time with Ben Davison, which is what he is doing? You're sacrificing your career to a guy that can't get you there. Or do you find a trainer who's going to tell you the truth? And the truth is, Chris Congo, you are super talented. We don't see enough of the dog and we don't see enough of the dog early enough in fights. You've got to unleash the inner dog. Yeah, you have to. And if it's not there, it's not there. But I think it is there. I'm a, Like I said, I'm Team Congo. But... That was just a brilliant fight. The ebb and flow in that fight, the way that people were trying to impose their tactics and seeing the tactics rise and fall in various phases of that fight, that's, that's what we need and that's what Sky should be delivering on every show. Stop all this showcasing. Stop all this sticking Fraser Clark in dead fights. Stop all this, this guy needs a four-rounder. We don't want to watch that. That's not what we're paying our subscription for. Give us fights like that. That's all. Give us fights so that when the board mandate fights, bid for them. Get them on that platform. That's all. Get them on that platform. And let's actually start entertaining the fans for a change. So thank you to, to Echo Esterman. Thank you to Chris Congo for putting it all on the line in a way that boxing fans respect, understand and appreciate. And also just happy for Barrington Brown to, to be getting some shine finally. You know, like Derby, is it Derby? Yeah, Derby's not the most fashionable of boxing distance. But now look, you got Barrington Brown, you got Clifton, you got Sandy Ryan, you got Echo. If Del Boy or Saze decides to come back out, I mean, it's starting to build there. And then if you start to look at what's happening in Leicester with the Stannards, the Tyler Rivers, it's, that kind of M1 corridor is looking promising. That might be the new hotbed of entertaining fighters at British level. So, you know, let's all keep an eye out for that. But I thought, yeah, those two gave us a hell of a fight and credit where credit's due. So I don't think it's, it's probably not fair to, to replay my assessment and analysis of the main event, um, Liam Smith and Chris Eubank Jr. I don't, think, I don't think you guys need to hear that. It's more just around what's sort of fallen out of it. So first and foremost... How Roy Jones has escaped criticism is beyond me. Like, people have sort of alluded to it, but I think his status in the sport means that people are frightened to criticise him. I'll come back to this point. When, when, when the highlight of the main event was Roy Jones shadow boxing, when you saw the commentary team fawning over Roy Jones shadow boxing, when Roy Jones shadow boxing looked better than Eubank Jr. shadow boxing, these are all red flags. And you've got to start asking the question, why is Roy in this? 
is Roy in it for the fighters or is he in it for himself? And there's nothing wrong with being in, into something for yourself, by the way. I support that. I, I think Roy Jones is one of the greatest boxers to ever lace on a pair of gloves. I just think he did things that defy all forms of boxing logic and probably the, some laws of physics. But here's the kicker. You're there to train Chris Eubank Jr. Did you study Liam Smith? Did you watch Liam Smith and go, he's got elements of the Glenn Johnson about him? Hmm. Maybe he's going to try and push my guy to the ropes so he can unleash his combinations. Maybe I don't want Junior in the, against the ropes. Maybe I could get away with that because I was Roy and I was a one-off and I had reflexes and I'd done this since I was a kid. Maybe Chris needs something a bit more fundamentally sound. Maybe as Roy Jones Jr., I should look at Eubank when he's been at his best and what has he done when he's been at his best. And let's build on that instead of trying to turn him into another version of me. Maybe Roy did all of those things and Chris said, no, I want to be like mini Roy. Maybe this is all Chris's fault. Who knows? What we do know is that corner was a shambles. That corner was an absolute shambles. People talk about Chris wasn't his normal self in the ring. Well, Chris hasn't been his normal self for a while. That Eubank guy, that, that guy in his 20s who, who went after any and everyone seems to have been, I don't even know, because he's not married and he's not a father, but something in his life has changed where he's not that guy anymore. I don't know why. I don't know if he knows why. But floating around with loads of retired boxers, floating around with these third-rate celebrities, floating around with people who pretend to be rich but aren't, that ain't the one. Chris Eubank Jr. went to Brighton College. He was around people with real wealth. I mean, like, he, he already knows those people. So floating around with, with this third-rate guy, this retired fighter, and that's not good for him. And all of that stuff catches up with you eventually. It softens you up. And you've got guys like Liam Smith. Just wants to fight. That's all that's important to him. And that's the art of being a professional, is always being at your best, being able to do what you're meant to do at the best of your ability. And he managed to do that. And Eubank had no answer. We can say he was weight drained. He was this, he was that. He signed the contract at 160. How he made the weight was entirely up to him. Could Chris move up to 168? Yeah, but there's some big guys at 168. Mark Heffron's not a small guy at 168. You know, how many small... These are not small guys. Jermaine Brown's not a small guy. Zach Chelly's not a small guy. Billy Joe, maybe, but he's also getting bigger. John Ryder's getting bigger. It's going to be hard to find a way back. And at 160, it looks like you struggle. Imagine if Denzel Bentley had hit Chris Eubank in that condition. Ah, Denzel will wipe the floor with him now. Like It wouldn't even be pleasant. And, you know, Denzel's showing that. He's showing that, I mean, he's remorseless and merciless. And I quite like seeing that in him. So what does Eubank do? That's a bit of a bind. 
and sort of what what seems to have colored the discussion now is I don't know if anyone saw Roy Jones's post on Instagram in response to Eddie Hearn. And now they're saying that it was an elbow that did for Eubank. And I'm like, what? He was hurt before, before that suspected elbow even came into it. Now, I'm not saying that an elbow didn't follow through. It probably did. It happens a lot in boxing, especially when there's needle between the guys. You just follow through and you say, oh, it was an accident. But that wasn't the problem. Eubank's taken worse, like I keep saying. He's taken worse in a fight and just shrugged it off. Where's that version of Eubank gone? That's what we want to know. Where is that version of Eubank gone? You know, but, and Liverpool, Liverpool, forgive me for what I'm about to say, because I'm saying it because I think it, and I don't understand why I think it, but it, it seems to be relevant. Liam Smith winning was potentially the worst thing that could have happened for, for us as fans. I'm going to explain why. You look at Liam's options now. And you're talking about Liam Smith against Golovkin. Golovkin's not Eubank Jr. I don't know if you want to see that. I don't know if anyone wants to see that. And not because I don't think he deserves a payday, I just think even an old Golovkin will still land some nasty shots on Liam Smith. So Liam Smith has just beaten Eubank Jr. Would it make sense to fight Kell Brook? I think it's a hard sell. So who do you have that you could put him in with? Where Liam will make the money as a pay-per-view headline. And bear in mind, he'll need a good dance partner because Liam's not really a talker like that. Like, as we learned in Fight Week, do not give Liam Smith a microphone because he's likely to offend. So Liam winning puts him in a hard position. His only viable option right now is the rematch. There's nothing else that makes more sense financially or for his legacy, the rematch. For Junior, it means he's stuck in this loop. And if he does win the rematch, then there's going to be a third fight. And then at that point, he'll be 34, 35. He'll probably have to call it a day anyway. Having never fought anyone of note, yet made millions. And Eubank Jr. may be that damning indictment of boxing that you can fight. Uh, let me say it properly. You can beat nobody. You can fight everyone, and he did. You can beat nobody. You can beat guys who are washed up. And you can be a multimillionaire without ever having to put yourself on the line. Nice work if you can get it. Conor Ben's trying that same model. Don't, don't be fooled for one second into thinking Eddie Hearn wants Conor Ben in any kind of serious fight because now he's scratching around going, who does Conor Ben fight next? So Eubank losing has upset those plans. Eddie's still trying to say the fight's got money in it. No, it hasn't. Because we know now that you're trying to you try to behave like a hyena. You've seen the wounded buffalo. You're like, oh my God, we can just jump in there without having to chase this thing. Which is also in bad taste, by the way. You know, once again, Eddie Hearn lowers, lowers the tone. All Eddie had to say was, let Eubank get a win and then we'll look at him again at 160. But now Conor Ben has no dance partner at 160. Who are you going to put him in with at 160? Anthony Fowler, maybe? Okay. But who else? You struggle, right? 
And that's what I'm trying to say. So Liam Smith winning was good in one way, but terrible in another way. Eddie will not put Liam Smith in with Conor Ben. Because he knows. He knows Liam, Liam will expose him. But I'm going to come back to this point. I still want to give Liam credit for winning. I think that was a good win. It showed a lot of things. I was talking to a guy who's been in camp with him, uh, Dexter. And Dexter was saying, people don't understand how good Liam is at breaking down what a fight is doing and nullifying it. I, he probably gave a better account of himself against Canelo than his brother did. So you've got to give Liam credit. I think he's unheralded as the Smith brother because he's kind of the lower profile Tries to be as normal as possible. Played football the day after. Took a shocking penalty. But yeah, give him his credit for the win. You know, look, and I, I get asked this question, do I think Liam Smith is clean? And I'm like, there'll be a time to have that discussion, but let him enjoy his win for now. But we could have that discussion later. He deserves the win. He went out there, did what he was meant to do. So kudos to him for doing that. Uh, like I said, overall, I think Sky delivered on that show whether it was by accident or design, who knows? Who even cares? But that's the standard of show we want with Sky. We want those talking points. We want to be able to come away from a show going, whew, we needed that. So one thing I wanted to touch on was those Liam Smith homophobic com comments. Uh, I've seen too many people in boxing come in trying to stick up for Liam, trying to, trying to grant him bail for that. Now, here's why, here's why it's an issue. You have two men about to knock lumps out of each other. These are guys who have generally shown their, their inability to be rattled by anything. And it's to their credit. So one, Liam Smith, clearly rattled by what Eubank had said to and about him, engages in these sort of pointless mind games, number one. Number two, to then try and drag Eubank down by saying, one, you've never seen him with a woman. You know, you ain't got no kids. Does that mean he's gay? And you, you, you're doing that, playing to the audience, number one. Number two, you're doing that to get under his skin. I get that. But there are many ways you can get under Eubank's skin. You, you could have easily just sat there and said, you're not even a poor imitation of your old man. There's stuff that happened in the real world. Don't forget there was that documentary, was it Louis Theroux, when he was with the Eubanks. There's stuff you could have found if you really wanted to get under Eubanks' skin. There's stuff you could have found, him fighting in a parking lot, allegedly, all this sort of stuff. There's stuff you could have found that would have really got to Eubank. But you chose sexuality. We're not in the 80s anymore. So the fact that you chose that is in bad taste and it shows really that you haven't done your homework on Eubank, right? You just haven't because there are loads of other things you could have found. And all this has done is it's kind of meant that your win will never take you mainstream. And maybe that's what you wanted. I don't know. But it means there are doors that are now closed to you because of what you said. That's why that was a bad decision. For, for, let's, let's just park what it did to Eubank for a second, if it did anything. Self-sabotage is always the worst kind of sabotage. And Liam Smith sabotaged his own prospects, his own career, and his own future by, by doing that. And I'm sure if he'd run that past Joe McNally first, Joe would have probably said, nah, don't do that. We're going to beat him anyway. 
You know, we don't need to do that. So that was the real shame about it. And I think boxing needs to do better. Like we can't keep inhabiting the sewer of human character and human behavior. We can't keep doing that and then expecting boxing to grow. We're not going to grow boxing until the people in the sport understand that they have a responsibility to represent it the right way. And Liam Smith failed to do that. Eubank Jr. did. And this is why we need him in the sport. He knows the lines to stay within and he does so every time. But I just thought, yeah, you know, I'm seeing people trying to explain away what Liam did, trying to defend him. Don't. Because he would have said that and gone, do you know what? I didn't even need to say that. That's probably what he was thinking. I didn't even need to say that. He wound me up so much. I shouldn't let my composure go that way. And now you've got to live with those consequences because that will never be undone. Also, another thing I want to touch on, how little promotion and excitement is building around Baturbi of Yard. You know when they announced it at, for the, the Wembley Arena, what's the capacity in Wembley? Like 12,000-ish? I don't even think they've sold that out. I'm confident if I wanted to get tickets for that fight on Saturday, I could get them. Without a shadow of a doubt, I could get tickets. I haven't seen Frank talk this up, and maybe Frank's not in a position to do so, but I haven't seen anyone from the Warren organization talking this fight up. I haven't seen Tunde anywhere. I haven't seen Yard. I haven't seen anyone talking up this fight. This is, this is tragic. Like, if you're not going to make the effort to promote it, I might not make the effort to watch it. And I genuinely mean that. I might not watch it. What's the point? Like, I'll go, if I can, I'll go and see Baturbiev in person, maybe at the public work. And I might, I might go and see him now, actually. I know where the hotel is. I might go and see him now. We'll hang out. But I come back to this point time and time again. Frank has opportunities to really put the foot down and accelerate and build stars like Anthony Yard. And he's not there banging on BT's door going, look, we need to get Baturbi and Yard on your screens, on your channel, fast, during this Heineken Cup rugby, during this show, during that show. You know, we need to be doing that. Let's get some of the Skybods down in fight week to talk. They could do all of this stuff. It's just lazy. And, and if no one's going to try from their end, why should I try? That's how I feel about that fight at the moment. No promotional muscle, no energy around it, no excitement. Yeah, I know there'll be a workout on Wednesday and a weigh-in on Friday. Great, but so what, man? I'll probably only do it just so I can go and get some, some food up at Wembley Park, wherever it is, a box park. That's it. But that's about it. But here's what I will say. If Yard pulls off that win, I want respect put on Tunde Jai's name forever. Forever. I want Tunde Jai to be considered in the same breath as Virgil Hunter because it's about time that he was. And yes, he's unconventional and he's abrasive, but these are good qualities to have as a coach. I promise you that is exactly how you want your coach to be because that is how you will be in the ring. And those sorts of characteristics only help you when you're fighting somebody else. What else has been happening in the world? Look, the Conor Ben thing won't go away, will it? So not only does Conor Ben behave distastefully, and his old man did as well. Like, and the thing I don't understand is why? Just why? Why? You failed two drugs tests. You tried to conceal him. 
Your old man let the cat out of the bag about one of them, right? And then we realized, well, I already knew there were two. And then the public realized there were two failed tests. So we were being lied to anyway. All engineered by Conor Ben. Conor Ben then runs away and talks about mental health. Then he comes back and goes, yeah, I want to be on Twitter throwing rocks at people. But when the rocks come back, I'm going to block them. Make sure you can't respond to me. Conor Ben went from being such a likable kid when he first started about six, seven years ago. Such a likable kid. A likable kid, respectful, humble, just wanted to fight and do the best he could. And he's become this. And it can only be down to Eddie Hearn. It can only be down to Hearn that he behaves this way. There's a puppet master here and it's got to be Eddie Hearn. And now they're talking about uh, their argument conclusively shows whatever, whatever. Let me just say this. They've only got one or two avenues to go down. They ingested it accidentally. Oh, Conor Ben was eating 55 eggs a day or something stupid like that. He's the reason we've got the egg shortage. Or they're going to tell us that the lab contaminated the sample. Now, I know where that lab is. It's at King's College, London. I used to study there. That's a world-class research institute. Let me say it again. That is a world-class research institute. That is a top 20 global institute for, like, research. Come on, man. Like, they... Think about this. That lab doesn't just do UCAD and VADA tests, right? That is like 0.0001% of their work. They're the people who test your blood. Yeah, They're the people who will test you for cancer. They're the people who will test you for all of those things. They'll test your urine. They'll test your blood. They'll test all your fluids. They'll test to see if your thyroid works. So let me ask you a question. When have you ever heard a doctor go, yeah, you see that lab we send our stuff to, King's College? Yeah, they contaminate samples. So yeah, I can't tell you if this blood test is accurate or not. When have you ever heard that? When have you ever heard anyone accuse that institution of contaminating a sample? You're essentially saying people whose job it is not to administer drug tests, by the way, they don't really care about the drugs test. Their job is to take samples from A to B. Right. The, the machines do the rest. So you're telling me that these people who are experienced, by the way. These people who pretty much every day do this just for Connor Ben decided to con to contaminate his sample, a sample, by the way, that you can't tamper with. Yeah. This is a sample that Connor Ben would have closed himself. It's a sample Connor Ben would have sealed himself. It is impossible to contaminate that sample. That laboratory is a world-renowned lab. They do not make those kinds of mistakes. And if they do, they will notify the parties when it happens. I thought that was an incredibly bad taste that you're going to come out and tell the boxing world, yeah, yeah, that lab, yeah, they contaminated it. That's all. That's what happened. That's why he was found with clomiphene twice. So they would have had to contaminate the sample twice. 
it can't be lab contamination. How do you contaminate the sample twice? There are two sets of piss taken at two different times. How do you say that's contaminated? What? You don't even know it's Connor Ben's piss because I think it's just an ID number. They just go, right, get ID number X and it's going through this sort of test. And then those results go out and then that, that alias is linked to a name at the back end. The operator doesn't know who's what. There's no way. So to say that this happened, you then because think about the implications for that lab, because now they go, well, hold on. You're telling me that twice, yeah, two separate incidents, we contaminated Connor Ben's sample with clomiphene. Only clomiphene, nothing else. No, no mercury, no heavy metals, no anything else that we may have been touching on the way. Because it's not like we don't change our gloves for every one of these things we move across, right? We wouldn't want to be professional like that. You're telling me twice they contaminated Connor Ben stuff with just clomiphene. Because if that happens, the lab then have to go back and investigate everything else that happened in that time period. Who knows how many tests they do a week? They have to then go, right, let's just make... You don't want that, so they don't have those things in place. It's not like it hasn't happened before. So I think, yeah. as boxing fans, here's what you want to take away from this. Conor Ben probably took that Clomid, probably took it to cheat. It doesn't matter what's in that 270-page document. It's all irrelevant. That guy tried to, he probably tried to cheat. I don't want to get myself sued. I would suggest he tried to cheat. He got caught. Now, whether he was just taking Clomid, I don't believe that. I believe the Clomid was there to restart based on what he'd been taking before. And I imagine from when he failed that test till now, he probably hasn't taken any other tests. We don't know what his blood profile is now. And because he's not licensed, no one can come and test him. He's not stupid. That's why he gave up his board license. So nobody could come and test him. And you guys are still prepared to grant this guy some leniency. Anyone who calls themselves a boxing fan should just be sending Conor Ben messages, quote, tweet him, whatever. And you say, Conor Ben's a cheating bastard. Retweet if you agree. That's it. Yeah. And his only way out of this is just to say, I tried to cheat. I saw him at 160. I'm not a big guy. I tried to cheat. I got caught. Give me my band, please. I'll be back. Done. I mean, then he can be, a, what's that guy's name? Is it Justin Gatlin? He can be the Justin Gatlin of boxing. But this continued, this continued dragging out of the story and it's this and it's in the lawyers and it's a confidential process. No, either he's saying that someone contaminated his food and that's how he ingested it or he's saying that the lab messed up. Now you say a lab like King's College messed up, you're causing problems. You're causing problems. Because they don't need UCAD and VADA work, by the way. They can just get rid of that because it's, it's cheap stuff. Or you just whack the rates up for UCAD and VADA testing. Because you can't be disrespecting an institution like that. And this is what happens when you let Eddie Hearn tell your story. He says stupid things that don't make any sense. Yeah? Because he knows that the idiot that's holding the camera hasn't got two brain cells to rub together. And he knows most of the people listening haven't got two brain cells to rub together. They'll just believe anything he says. 
because like I said, he's a man of privilege and he understands how to manipulate those who don't come from privilege. But I don't know. And then he, got, then he was just waffling on about Joshua, wasn't he? That Joshua might be, Jermaine Franklin's the front runner. So they can overlook Bacoli. They can overlook Otto Wallin. They can overlook all of these guys. And to be fair, like the way, the, the amount of time they've taken, they may as well just have fought Hellenius. But they've been through all of this. All of this supposed soul searching, finding new trainers, fresh beginnings. But Joshua doesn't want to tune up. He wants to be straight back in the mix. All of this stuff, you're doing all of this to fight Jermaine Franklin. <laughs> Jermaine Franklin. And that's not a shot to Jermaine Franklin, by the way. Right? Because he's, he's just getting his money. And I rate that. But you're going to overlook guys like Michael Hunter. You overlook guys like Hergovic. You overlook guys like Gilles Zhang. You overlook guys like Bacoli, overlook guys like Otto Wallen, overlook guys like Tom Schwartz. You're going to overlook all of these guys to fight Jermaine Franklin. That tells me you're scared. That tells me you're scared and you're looking for an easy way to get credibility back. Sadly, there's no easy way to get that credibility back because you promised so much and the public will hold you to that promise. And Joshua's failed to deliver on that. He can't keep calling himself a true champion, a fighting man. He's none of these things until he gets back in there with true fighting men. Not, not Jermaine Franklin. Jermaine, Jermaine Franklin should be fighting guys that tear down, man. Let, let Jermaine Franklin fight a Brian Jennings or someone like that. Why can't he fight? Why can't Jermaine Franklin fight a Chisora or a Takam? Why people got to ruin his career just so they can advance their own? I just... The sooner someone just puts an end to this Joshua nonsense, the better for me. I'm just bored of it. And the thing is, it's not even because of Joshua. It's because of Hearn. He's scrambling now because the zone are like, mate, you're not delivering. So let's see when he announces his schedule for the next three months. Let's see what fights we really get. Because I have a feeling you're going to see a lot of all-female bouts for titles. And that will be his justification. He's going to try and use that that same logic he used on Sky. Like, I guaranteed you world titles. Here are your world titles. Have them. <laughs> and meanwhile, his fans were like, this is the same garbage he served up on Sky. Just at a higher price point for the zone. <laughs> yeah, I just... We've gone from that real high of Liam Smith versus Eubank Jr. Just a well-managed process all the way through to its conclusion to then just the usual chaos of Eddie Hearn not knowing how to take his foot out of his mouth and Frank Warren not knowing how to tell us Baturbio's in town and we should all be looking to find him wherever he is. That's boxing for you. Man. On, on that note, I want to tap out. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do a show about Baturbio Yard because no one's given me a reason to care. So I don't know when you'll hear from me next, but listen, have a great day, whatever you choose to do. <laughs>